that's what what food does it gives you a sense of time and place but freedom to explore not only your own culture and, and have so much respect for your family your ancestors that you can dab into other cultures and pull those ingredients in and still be part of your own dna to me that's what freedom of cooking you know gives to me and hopefully gives to everyone else hello friends Welcome back to the Atlanta Foodcast. There are many instances in recording interviews for this show when I almost forget I'm even producing a podcast anymore. I'm just having a conversation, but a great conversation. An amazing conversation that unravels an incredible story and an even more incredible individual. And I'm very, very honored to bring you this conversation with Chef Todd Richards. Here's a chef in Atlanta celebrating his upbringing and the collision of cultures that make up soul food. And we get into all the good stuff from his childhood in Chicago, opening and working in restaurants here in the city, and writing his first cookbook titled Soul. There's lots of fun here, so let's get right to it. But, uh, no, I think that, that's a badass tattoo, man. I love it. I love it. But, uh, but man, chef... I, I think collard greens are the tree of life. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I think it's amazing to see, like, I mean, I, I grew up only with collard greens being cooked in a in a pot stewing all day you mm-hmm. know but then you know show up like you know 20 years later 30 years later and uh i'm eating like a vegan wrap you know with a collard leaf instead of you know bread right. something like that so so much so much versatility in that vegetable but um but yeah uh chef todd richards welcome to the show welcome to the atlanta Foodcast. Uh, thank you. you. Got me in mid swallow of drinking uh, champagne in the morning. It is. I know it, it's a uh, it's eleven twenty one on a Thursday, uh, which pretty much means there's no better time to be drinking rosé. I, I tell everyone that you start your day with a glass of champagne. Um, you take a little time to uh, sit and really understand what the day is about, and you celebrate the life you had the day prior, which makes it all very delicious. Yeah. That sounds like a great, great way to start. So yeah. that was that was champagne or rosé? Uh, sparkling rosé. Sparkling rosé. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't really even give rosé a chance. Maybe that's a great t-shirt, give rosé a chance for someone like me. <laughs> right. Uh, I didn't even really think rosé was something um, that I would like. I kind of just turned my nose up to it because of all the hype that it gets, especially with like rosé and it ends up on everyone's menu and, you know, all that. But uh, You know, the bastardizing of things that are great is... Uh, also part of the american way as well <laughs> <laughs> it's true look what we've done to kale right you know? i mean kale used to be um uh really grown for uh a, a good summer vegetable that took place for uh things like collard greens it also then became the the meat lining tray in most butcher shops their kale you know right. all the meats would sit on there and now kale is prolifically grown just to um be a substitute for styrofoam and and a lot of things that people create with it they dehydrate it with a little bit of seasoning but the the texture is not really what it's meant for yeah it is really funny now that you mentioned that you think about the uh 
like just above the bed of ice in a butcher case. Like what can we put in there that's green and it's going to look like it's some part of the same, uh, you know, culinary family, I suppose, but it's also impervious to moisture and it's going to look just as green at the end of the day as it did at the beginning of the day. You know, I really don't have a issue with kale being on that, that tray, you know, it, yeah. it, it makes sense to me. I much rather see that than just somebody, uh, what, colored paper on right. there you know which really yeah. serves absolutely no purpose but it also what it does um, what most people don't realize is that it protects the meat kale does because yeah. it provides moisture but it also absorbs moisture at mm-hmm. the same time so the meat is aging but it's aging with something that's alive yeah you know at the same time whereas you put it on meat I mean, a meat on paper and it's just pulling all the moisture out of it and then you wonder yeah. why your steak is dry brittle and tough yeah i feel like that's like another podcast episode of like talking about things that are not used how they really should be or things that we've kind of screwed up over the past like five to ten years and get back to like you know the the real root of like how things should be used i mean that's the reason one reasons why i wrote the cookbook soul is, is to say that that I think people have gotten a little bit stale in the traditional mm-hmm. and they want something new and, and having a new way to see collard greens is not just a put in the pot, ham hock, onions, vinegar, crushed red pepper flake, salt and pepper dish that you can actually take that dish and, and, and turn it in so many different ways. You can just take the leaves and blanch them and make collard green pesto yeah. with them and utilize it that way. Or you can make ramen with it. Yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're going to get into that because mm. I want to talk about collard green ramen, mm. which is one of my favorite. I haven't actually, full honesty, have not prepared it yet, mm. but it's definitely the one that's like earmarked on my copy of your book yeah. that I can't wait to, uh, that I can't wait to actually getting... do in my own household. Mm. But, um, but man, as we're getting started here, um, I want to I wanna go through a few questions with you. Okay. And one of the first questions I ask everyone on my show mm. is, I want to know who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she? Well, it, it's more than a he or she. It's probably a lot of he's and a lot of she's um, <laughs> who, who, who did so. Uh, our family growing up were always the entertainers. So every birthday, holiday, Christmas party, uh, New Year's Eve party was always at our house. Uh, Thanksgiving brunch was at our house. Uh, the summer, uh, we have a uh, the amount of Leos that we have in our family is probably ridiculous. Uh, so we all had one big gathering centered around my birthday. And in the book, you'll see a picture of a cake there. I'm holding it up. Yeah. But, but it's my birthday, but I have like seven other people on this cake. Plus my great grandparents anniversary. Uh, it was at the same time on the cake. I was like, I thought this was supposed to be about me. Like what did, where did all these other people come from? And when, so when you look at it that way, that that my dad had a lot of frugality in his cooking but it was very structured and very traditional and very the way it was supposed to be and so a lot of the barbecues uh, that took place my dad took care of all the meats my mom did a little bit of the sides but a lot of people in our family brought sides during that time and in winter time it was a little bit reversed you know my mom did a lot of the cooking especially for the brunches frying catfish making biscuits things like that and then our neighbors next door who were always invited to our house or we're invited to their house they would bring fried chicken over they would make cakes and things like that so it was an entire community that fed me as a kid yeah and and this is in chicago right this is in chicago in the south side of chicago 
what most people don't understand about the migration to the north is that my family started, my, well, my mom's side of the family started in Alabama, and then they went to Carolina, and then up to Ohio, then to Chicago. My dad's family started from Louisiana and came straight to Chicago. So a lot of these you know, dishes from the south that, that, that we see in, in what we consider soul food, soul food is a northern term, it's not a southern term. It was just food here in the south. But those practices and those ways of cooking and those techniques were always a part of the way we showcase our our love for the people that we were cooking for. So, you know, Big Ma next door would always have fried chicken wings on the stove. Uh, she would always have chocolate mousse pie or lemon chest pie in, in, you know, sitting there for us. And she took care of that section of the block of the neighborhood where all the kids would go to school, parents are working, and we all knew that we can go there and get something to eat afterwards. Yeah. And that, that's actually, that kind of tees up this really, uh, really, really well. I want to know, like, what was a formative meal of your youth that you just, like, you can't get out of your memory? I would say right away my mom's catfish uh, because it was always on Friday. Uh, uh, my dad worked from 8 at night to 8 in the morning, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, so he could be home with me and my sisters during the, during the uh, week. And she would always fry the catfish for him. She would always fry two pounds or so of it. And we would eat some, my dad would eat some, and when he got home at the you know, going to see our grandparents or cousins or going bowling or some activity, come back home and there's just those little bit of crunchy crumbs left on the paper towel from the catfish was there. And then understanding how we ate out. I mean, my dad worked downtown uh, Chicago. And so sometimes we'll drop them off. So we'll stop in Chinatown. There was there. Greek town was around the corner. And you find out that these things are, you know, these foods are so delicious, but the techniques are really not much different than what we're we're doing. Uh, you know, leftover rice in our refrigerator, you know, w was sautéed next day with bacon. So we're talking about fried rice and and maybe in a soul food form, but it's no different than really what fried rice would be in a Chinese food form as well. Yeah, isn't that cool though? I mean, I, I love the way that if you look at it in terms of you know what are the what are kind of like the boxes that you check that you know give you the starch, the fat, the protein, and then some sort of veg. Like you're making fried rice. It's just maybe not with like the same ingredients as like you know something that might have like Chinese influence or Sichuan influence and now you're just putting your own spin on it but the building blocks it still makes it the same dish it's just different flavor profile I, I always say that 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 people should not be judged by the color of their skin but by the cooking techniques that they utilize <laughs> because you really think about it that a, a hot wok you know, at 400 degrees is not much different than a cast iron skillet at 400 degrees. Understanding yeah. that the technique of, of utilizing your knee to, to, to change the temperature of the wok or, or utilizing a bigger pan to, to do it with a spoon or a spatula, that we're talking about cooking in cast iron, that hot, high-fire cooking that, that makes it really delicious. Yeah. I'm a baker, I guess, by trade. I bake sourdough. Right. So, you know, ripping hot cast iron. Like, I cook in a Dutch oven whenever mm -hmm. I make sourdough, yeah. and people don't understand why it has to be so hot, and they walk into my home, they're like, it's blazing hot in here <laughs> right. i was like but just the bread that it produces like high heat and especially just what it does to i mean just 
the the science behind it. Like high heat cooking is incredible. Like what it does is amazing. I agree. I will walk into a place, look at a baguette, and then I will pinch the end of it and I hold it to my ear because I want to hear the crunch. Right. And if I don't hear the crunch, then that's not the baguette for me. Yeah. One of the bakers that I respect the most, he said he always told me that a baguette or a bowl, mm-hmm. the crack of that crust should be deafening. You're correct. I was like, that's that's poetic first and foremost but like man like talk about like knowing the craft you know but it's funny too i mean there's there's another rabbit trail we could go down but just like the audibility of food you know it gets so crucial i mean well bacon now you know i talk about that in the book that that people have to listen to bacon cooking yeah i mean the sound of bacon you know the high heat the bubbles popping all that stuff but when the pan gets silent Mm -hmm. the bacon is ready yep and most people say thing with fried chicken, fried chicken, big bubbles, and, and you hear all that. But when, when it gets silent, you know it's ready. So you don't have to necessarily always be there to look and see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can definitely smell it and know that you know at some point that's going to be burnt, so you know if you've gone too far. But the sound of food really gives us a, a great quality of understanding how delicious something is and when it's ready, most importantly. Yeah, big time. And I, I think that's uh, that's a really great lesson for anyone who you know might feel less comforted if they don't have recipe and instruction in front of them. But it's a great lesson of you gotta you've gotta learn the ethereals of the side of cooking. Like just use your instincts. Like use your ears. Like as you're using your hands and your eyes, obviously. But you gotta listen. Like you gotta learn that. You know. Like you gotta understand that there's so much sound that comes from what you're preparing, and that's gonna teach you a lot of like what you're actually making. We we did a a local TV news station, and we did the fried chicken. And most people don't understand that at the restaurant that the fried chicken is gluten-free. And people say, why would you make gluten-free fried chicken? Are you trying to be healthy and everything? It's like, no, I really want to serve the best fried chicken that I know possible. That a lot of times people take food to go and that the, the crunch is the essence of what fried chicken is. Mm-hmm. So if you use AP flour, you close the box, it'll get soggy. Mm-hmm. If you use gluten-free flour, you know, no matter what happens, they'll stay crunchy. It's the same thing with, you know, with in, in Chinese cooking or Asian cooking. They use cornstarch instead of using everything else. Yep. So that same principle is when, you know, the, the host of the TV show picked up the chicken and, and, and bit into it. The crunch was so loud. <laughs> I mean, it was like <laughs> that you can hear the essence of, of, of the crunch, you know. And she couldn't even talk. She was so shocked that it was so right. crispy and crunchy. She's like... On sound alone, this is the best damn fried chicken I ever had in mm-hmm. my life. And that's what makes it important. You know, it, we have to utilize all the senses in order to make it, you know, worthwhile. Yeah, I know. that That is true. I mean, like, that that's satisfying crunch. I mean, whether it's through... I mean, I, I love fried chicken. Like, a thigh is, like, what I go for immediately. Mm-hmm. But if it's... Uh, I mean, even, like, just a good chicken wing. I like a breaded chicken wing every yeah. now and again. Mm-hmm. And just, like, that crunch, man. Like, that's just, like... It, uh, it completes your day. It's yeah, real I, nice. I, I agree. 100%. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, getting back a little bit into just your history. So talk to me like just like the, the timeline of growing up in Chicago and how you end up in Atlanta. Well, I was leaving uh, University of Illinois. I was coming to, uh, I got accepted at Georgia Tech. I came down here for Freaknik, came down here for a party, and Reed's like, wow, this is crazy. You know, I've never seen a place where you can actually learn and party at the same time. <laughs> but prior to that, you know, I've been in college. Um, in high school, I, I went to college four days a week, and, and high school two days a week. Then two years of, of college, you know, after six years, I was pretty much done. Like, this is not fulfilling 
to me. I, I keep learning things, but I don't find it useful for what I want to accomplish in life. And you know, really, just like anyone else, I needed a job. And I went to Kroger uh, on La Vista Road locally, and they had a person, they said, can you wrap meat? And I said, well, hell, I've been cooking meat all my life with my dad. You know, I know how ins and out of most butcher places that we went to. Yeah, sure, I can wrap meat. And I started wrapping meat and then became a meat counter butcher. Uh, then went to Toco Hills to the uh, Jewish um, uh, uh, butcher shop over there. And from there on, I was always around food. And uh, fortunately, uh, on La Vista Road, there is the Blue Ribbon Grill, mm -hmm. and, and Chef Eddie, who, also, who owns Blue Ribbon right now, uh, said that, hey, after a year or so, I've taught you everything I taught you, I can teach you, it's time for you to move on, and he put me in with uh, Chef Evans, Chef Daryl Evans, and at that time, he was taking over the kitchen at the Occidental Grand Hotel, which is the Four Seasons Hotel right now. And went in the kitchen, saw everyone walking around with those big chef hats on and, you know, crisp white, you know, jackets and, and stark uh, aprons. And I said, this is the place for me. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of backtrack for that, that eating downtown a lot in Chicago. We always went to Lawry Steakhouse mm. uh, as a kid. And, you know, they bring that prime rib cart around and it's the chef there with, you know, the same thing, chef, you know, long, big chef hat, you know, stark uh, chef jacket. He opened that cart and there's, you know, all these temperatures of prime rib, you know, well done, medium, medium rare, rare. My parents were mystified, like, why would I wanted the medium rare re meat at that time? It's like, well, it's the juiciest looking piece of meat right there. <laughs> yeah. So give me that one. And then it was mashed potatoes, uh, the rolls, green beans, horseradish, au jus. And that car, he would just slice what you need. They had chicken and, and lamb racks in, uh, in there as well. He would just slice it and put it on your plate, and then the maitre d' would come around. So this is something that's always instilled in me, that image of, you know, this chef, you know, preparing this most delicious food. And the reaction of people around the table was so important to my DNA that once I went to the hotel and saw this same exact uh, thing that I can do and do it well, I was hooked. Yeah, there's a there's something really magical and uh, maybe even a bit of a lost art with table side. It's, it's it's far more than just dining. Like someone serving you your food, it is the entertainment aspect. I mean, like you know, if uh, if you've never had like someone prepare crepe Suzette Correct. table side, like there's even today, like there is something truly special about that. But even uh, it, it's kind of like that dim sum style oh, where it's like the carts it, roll around. Oh man, and it's just so fun. You know, like it, it definitely it elevates your your experience in dining. Like it's not just you know now I'm replacing calories with food. Like now it's like you're it's an experience. But that sounds awesome. I you know food has always been that. It's been that part of me growing up that that. At some point in time, we had 50 to 75 people coming through our house. You know, this was a three-bedroom, you know, well, how many bedrooms, bathrooms? About two-and-a-half bathroom house when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a big place to have 50 or 70 people, but that backyard would be full. You know, people will spill over into the neighbor's uh, area. We always entertain with food and beverage and, and music as well. Yeah, that's huge, man. So so you're you're spending some time getting your, your career Kickstarted. <laughs> Chef needs a, a, a refill yes, of, of sparkling rosé. Well, 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 if the cord was a little bit longer, I would 
go over there and get it myself. I, I think I'll invest in some wireless headphones no, and no, wireless, no, no, no. wireless no, no, microphones. No, no, no. You know, I'm a DJ and a musician, so so having a cord is very important yeah. to the experience. <laughs> it keeps you in your lane, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's one place that yeah. you need to be, yeah. and it's right at the DJ booth. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so you're getting your career started here in Atlanta. So talk to me about like the progression. I mean, because you, you have been, first and foremost, mm-hmm. your background is awesome. I love just knowing the places that you have been and started and I mean, enjoying your, your restaurants in multiple places and, and the menus that you've developed and the people, the teams that you've, that you've started and developed. And, um, it's just, it's really, really awesome. So talk to me about like your, your background and kind of, I mean, the, the story of like where, you know, like one flew shed at Glenwood ping and pearl. And then like all the way up to today is kind of like where I want to, like land, but so I start, you know, at the hotel at the Four Seasons, I went to Villa Cristina, which is still there. You know, really great uh, progressive Italian restaurant, and from there we opened Spice, which became uh, Straits, and now is another restaurant on Fifth and Juniper. And after I left there, I went to Ritz Carlton uh, downtown, and it was great experience being there. Uh, and fortunately for myself, uh, they were doing some transitioning at the Ritz-Carlton West Palm Beach. And they needed a chef to go down there and went down there. And that was, uh, let me back up a little bit. At the Ritz-Carlton um, downtown, we were number one in the company for food and beverage. And, oh, wow. And, and that's really a, a great, great uh, starting point to understand my career. And when I went to West Palm Beach uh, at that time, Ritz-Carlton, there was 30 properties uh, Jamaica and Puerto Rico, which always are very difficult in international travel to be number one in the company. They were 29 and 30 in rankings, and West Palm was 28. And in my tenure there, we became number one in the company. Wow. We changed so many things. We really went locally focused on food and community and uh, anyone knows me that there's rules and there's Todd's rules and I don't follow any of the other rules. You know, <laughs> things that we were supposed to be doing, I never I never did. Now, of course, we were always in line with food costs, beverage costs, you know, things. But we focus on the local community and mm-hmm. the farmers and the fishermen and things like that. Went to uh, Oak Room in Louisville, Kentucky, a five-diamond restaurant, one of 42, 44 in the world to achieve that. We did that for five years, and so that at that time, Jerry uh, Slater and I, uh, Jerry was the major D, and then became general manager. We and with Dwayne Nutter uh, opened One Flew South in the airport, and that to me is really a crowning achievement because there's still no restaurant in the world like One Flew South. And and I want to I want to spend some time right there because yeah. you're you you mentioned something that so many people in their own words talk about One Flew South. And it's it's almost like there's an asterisk next to I ate at One Flew South because first of all being in Hartsville Jackson like I mean that has its own like level of challenges and like hearing stories about like yeah all the knives are on chains and all that kind of stuff because of security but it's also just it, it completely blows apart the idea that dining inside of an airport has to be this one lane that you stay in. Like it's just this level of food. You're an inconvenience cause you're trying to get on an airplane. Like one flew South is like it's hospitality and atmosphere and the food is incredible. So there's like some serious magic even to this day. And I ate at one flew South not too long ago mm-hmm. and it was still just as good. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an amazing achievement. <laughs> 
Well, coming directly from a Five Diamond restaurant, we wanted to ensure that hospitality was the most important aspect of the restaurant. Uh, if you want something in 10 minutes, we're not the place for you. Uh, you, you want to have an experience in travel, that's the place we are. And what made it really special uh, is that we learned our customers so well that even in the spill today, we ask, how much time do you have? Right. Well, let's point you to this direction of the menu if you only have 45 minutes. You have two hours, we have the whole menu to go, go through. <laughs> uh, and now we're actually working on a 10-year anniversary menu because most people, even myself, are a little mystified that it's been open 10 years. Mm -hmm. And anyone, anywhere would love to have a restaurant that's operating for 10 years oh, consecutively. Yeah. But it was really about the hospitality and understanding that we were there to, to be for the guests and that our egos were more developed by how the guests received us in hospitality and how we all worked together from service, uh, food, and beverage in order to make it the most uh, delicious experience that anyone can have. And we still have people that start came from there from day one who still come back to One Flew South to the point that some people even call the bartenders or they'll call uh, the host and say, hey, I'll be landing in two hours. Hold a table for me. Wow. Those, that kind of hospitality experience is what the world is supposed to be about. And we never uh, lost track of that, you know, in the 10 years of operation. Yeah, it's amazing, man. I I, I, love, I do love that. Like, you got 45 minutes, like, okay, cool. Like, you're probably going to make it through some sushi. Like, we can probably, you know, whip you up a... I mean, I've had great cocktails yeah. at One Flew South. But mm -hmm. then it's just like, you got like two hours, like all right just throw your bags to the side and like just just chill with us for a little bit but yeah. it's a it's a really special restaurant so well creating experience is what you know restaurants are you mm -hmm. know if you go in there say i'm just going to have the best food and poor service mm -hmm. you know if you look at the reviews of most restaurants people will go back for great service and okay food mm -hmm. and that's hard for a chef to understand mm -hmm. people will never go back for great food and terrible service exactly yeah, that's a really weird equation, you know, and especially in today, I mean, like where customer service or, you know, just the expectation of customer service is kind of like the front runner of yeah. how people make a decision to like where they're going to go spend their hard earned money. You know, it's or if you can like, actually talk to a person still yeah. as 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 well. And the frustration yeah. that we see in restaurants is that the automation of things is not necessarily um, part of the way food grows. Food doesn't grow automatically. You know, yep. we take uh, living things and, 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 and we take the lives of living things to prepare nurturing food for people. So you can't be a fully automated place in order to serve delicious food if you try to take the human and the, the lives of the plants, vegetables, meats out of it. Yeah. So, so you guys opened One Flew South. And I mean, again, like 10 years. I mean, that's amazing. But that's not at all like where your story <laughs> stops. You know, in between that, you know, we did Rolling Bones on Edgewood Avenue, mm -hmm. you know, and that was Bon Appetit, you know, best uh, barbecue, you know, new barbecue restaurant. Um, went to the shed at Glenwood uh, and, and did that. And, and is it prior? No, before that, I'm sorry. Before that, I was at the Ritz-Carlton Bucket mm. uh, and... Uh, great friend of mine peter was actually the executive chef of downtown when i was uh uh chef de cuisine and he uh 
went back to Rich Carlton Buckhead and did that one. And so it took over the restaurant there. And then again, number one in the company, breaking all the rules. Everyone was so frustrated and mad at me until the scores comes out. <laughs> it was like, well, number one, number one, number one. You know, guest satisfaction, <laughs> overall food. And and that was always the motto. And and, and I give Peter so much credit because he covered for me for so long. But he knew what I was going going to do. And then, you know, went to the shed at Glenwood, which is in uh, Grant Park area, which I, I love. And I love this resurgence of Grant Park right now. And open pig in a pro. So you can always see that barbecue is always in my blood right. uh, from cooking my dad, having rolling bones, opening pig in a pro. And, and, you know, to, to where I'm at right now, where Richard Southern Fried, back overseeing One Flew South and Chicken and Beer, both in the airport and a couple of restaurants we're working on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool. You know, I mean, um, my family and I we live on the Belt Line, so Crock Street Market is like a a normal like just a couple times a week maybe. Like we'll go there for coffee or breakfast one morning, and then we'll go for like you know dinner one night of the mm-hmm. week. And uh, it's it's really cool that you know there's um, I I think the way that you can still you know approach the the dining experience in the airport like it's just kind of like you're walking by, but then you kind of you know, walk in to mm-hmm. one flew South and then, but like the, like Richard Southern fried and Crock street market, it's, it's cool because like, it still has like the, it still retains a lot of like the, the level of service and a lot of like the customer satisfaction. I think that you get it every other concept that you've touched, but it definitely has like the, the more of like you're, you're dropping in and then, you know, you're, you're finding some place to sit, hopefully at right. Crock Street Market, <laughs> right. but, but man, like everything is still like totally baked in to all that food that you're consuming. I mean, like, I mean the chicken mm. <laughs> by and large, mm. we don't even have to mm. mention how amazing that is, but I just love like, yeah, I love that there's like always the, like a, like a pie or some sort of dessert, like sitting on the counter. And like, that's usually like what I can't get away from. Right. It's like, that's, that's just kind of like dangling out there for me to grab. Well, well it's the guest experience. Um, that, that even in the midst of, uh, you know, all the other restaurants, what does a Todd Richards restaurant feel like? And it's always warm hospitality. Uh, and it always has a little bit of a throwback inside of it. You know, Richards looks like a diner mm-hmm. in, in a sense, but it's in a modern context. Yeah. And that's what makes it so fun to see that, you know, in a modern context at a diner that we can serve really delicious fried chicken in and guests can, are always welcome to sit at the counter, to stand. I mean, we have people will just stand there and eat. You know? Oh yeah, and, and and the pies, you know, the the bourbon pecan pie. We can't, you know, keep them fast enough. Yeah, you know, for most of the time we'll sell out of them within a day. But that's what makes it exciting to be a part of to see, you know, what's in my brain that I can translate through hospitality in order to bring people together. You look at a concept like that, and you see people, you know, we have six seats there. You'll see a guy in a business suit reading New York Times or Wall Street Journal. You'll see a family of two there. You'll see, you know, you know two kids, um, you know, just got out of school there. You'll see, you know, hip-hop artists there, mm-hmm. you know, talking on his phone. That's what fried chicken does for everyone. It brings everyone together. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to have that restaurant. Yeah, that's awesome. I know. I just, I love the footprint of so many restaurants that you have concepted and opened and worked on and, and still have, you know, running today here in Atlanta. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's pretty prolific work, chef. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't sleep. Um, <laughs> you know, 
some of the best thoughts come between two and four in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my wife's like, "Why? What's going on?" And like, I'm like, grab my phone and I might type something down so I don't forget it. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, for sure. Um, well, I want to shift gears here and talk about something really exciting uh, that I've read cover to cover, and mm-hmm. it's. It's just awesome. There's a lot of things to touch on in your book, Soul. Mm-hmm. And um, but before we get into some of the things, like I want to, I want to talk through some of the things that have just really stood out to me as okay. I've read through your book. And again, now, there's a lot of cooking that I need to do out of your book as well. But <laughs> but um, but tell me just about you know the the process. I mean, as being a chef and having restaurants, and then also you know the um, the kind of uh, <laughs> I guess like the you know, the, the monster that everybody faces in writing a cookbook, everybody hears about the process. Like, tell me about, you know, how, how and when you started it to, to today, where it's actually sitting on the table in front of us. Well, the journey started two years ago, but most what I would tell people is that I had no clue what the process was. Hmm. Um, again, breaking all the rules that, you know, my great publisher, uh, uh, Southern Living, along with Time, they're Meredith now. You know, they had a, a wonderful person, Sean Shavis, helping me, you know, write the book and everything. Uh, but in Sean and I relationship, uh, she would say, well, what do you want to say? And I said, well, Sean, you know, let me write it out. Um, and that can really help. That really helps me in the process. It's like making a menu. Uh, either most people can go and just you know go to the stove. Me, I have to write the menu first. I have to do all the research first. I have to get it on paper so it it, it goes through my mind and understand exactly what I'm trying to say. Hmm. So in the process of writing recipes, I want to write the recipes in the same tense of writing the book. I want it to be from cover to cover the journey that I feel food and and my story takes. And so what happened is is that I ended up writing the book. Mm-hmm. And Sean would, would go back and correct things, then we'll send it to the editor. And of course, editors are, are in fine-tooth combs of it. But the process was I would leave work. Uh, we will have dinner with the family. Everyone will go to bed. I'll grab a bottle of uh, champagne. In the wintertime, it was a little bit of rye whiskey. And I would type from 11 at night to 4 in the morning. And that was the actual process of writing a book. Because I don't think anyone can tell the story better than I can tell of my own experience in food. Yeah. That's a fun story to even just think of right there, though. It's like you're going throughout your day, finishing like the day part with your family doing dinner mm. and then you grab a bottle of champagne and then there's mm. chef riding from 11 in the evening to four o'clock in the morning. That's cool, man. Well, that's, <laughs> that's what it's all about though. It, it really, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, the sacrifice, you know, my family made, you know, you know, no one wants to sleep in the bed alone when you're married, you yeah, know, it's like exactly. when you come into bed, you know, and, but that was sacrifice, but also the stories, understanding, you know, how I got into food, the stories of my family, you know, why food was always important to me, the stories of, of people like Chef Evans, mm-hmm. why is the story of, of why soul food needs to be on the same plane as French food. When you look at the pure technique of duck confit, which is preserving uh, duck and, and fat, you look at collard greens where you have ham hock and when it cools down the fat rises to the top you know those techniques are the same and it's really those, all those experiences of life i want to give 
a, a modern context of what soul food is. Yeah. And that's how I got there. Yeah. And I love like, yeah, I mean, just like even looking at it here and just like thinking about it as I was reading through the book, mm-hmm. you know, it's your, like the culinary evolution and 150 recipes. Did that just like naturally happen or did? I believe we had 156 uh, oh, okay. recipes. And, and when we got to the end of it, uh, there are six of them that just didn't work. Gotcha. And, and that's what it was. I really literally wrote the recipes in, in, in order based off coming from traditional to modern and the experience that I want people to have. I have you know, hundreds of cookbooks mm-hmm. and, and I know them intimately, but I always think there's never a good order of, of recipes that you can have if you don't start from the beginning. Like you're not giving the reader a foundation of how you got to this point. So you look at collard greens, traditional, how do we get to ramen? How do we get to this? Well, we started here first mm-hmm. and we ended here but I always tell people, just because the recipes in the book in here doesn't mean that you have to stop. You can now take this formula and move you know, way beyond the scope of what the book is. Totally. And, uh, and something I really like about your book is the way that it reads. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, may, maybe there's kind of like differing schools of thought of a cookbook is a tool. I'm going to pick up a cookbook because I need it to teach me how to create this recipe in my own home for a group of friends, whatever. But I, I've never picked up a cookbook. And I mean, I, I've definitely recalled, you know, one of my favorite cookbooks is, uh, you know, Tartine Bread, yeah. Chad Robertson. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what taught me how to make sourdough, like how to make my own starter. But I read it because of, you know, like it was more to, to your point, it was the story of how this whole thing started of like him, you know, staging and spending time in France and his wife and then like, you know, how they ended up in the Bay Area. And then like, but your cookbook as well of like, I love how it goes through like kind of ingredient, like here's the building block and here's everything that kind of fits into this you know, specific ingredient. And then, you know, talking about seasonality, but then one of my favorite parts of the book are the, the actual tables of food. And it, and it shows you just in like little like snipes where there's like this dish and this dish, but it's like the overhead shot of everybody, like, you know, grabbing this plate. And then, um, but that, that gives you more of an idea of like, this is, this is not just one item. It's like, you're not just making cornbread. You're not just, you know, incorporating, you know, this dish with collard greens. Like it's, it's meant to be a harmony of all of these dishes, but also all the ingredients itself. I love that, that the way that that plays throughout the book. It's absolute freedom, and, and and that's what makes it so fun, that you're free to take any of these recipes, put them all together, or cook them singularity, and and have a, a really delicious meal. Mm-hmm. That to me, that's absolute freedom. Where if you don't have this onion, you can get this onion. You know, you don't have collard greens. This recipe translates to mustard greens. You can invite one person over. You can invite a hundred people over. You know, that's what what food does. It gives you a sense of time and place, but freedom to explore not only your own culture and and have so much respect for your family, your ancestors, that you can dab into other cultures and pull those ingredients in and still be part of your own DNA. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what freedom of cooking, you know, gives to me and hopefully gives to everyone else. Mm. Yeah. Um, There's two quotes that, or I guess I kind of mashed them together, but 
the the ones that really stuck out to me like this was my first pass through the book mm-hmm. and um and then i kind of like you know went back through all the pages that i dog-eared and i was like <laughs> oh my gosh like that's right like i mm-hmm. you know like recipes that i want to try out mm-hmm. or just things that really stood out to me but two of the quotes that i that i wrote down here that i just really like and the first um the first part you know soul food is the original cuisine of the south born from an involuntary collision of cultures that's a really powerful quote that's a really powerful yeah. quote yeah. Did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, yeah. that was a, a rye whiskey moment, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but that's, what, that's one of those brilliant... I mean, when you talk about the involuntary collision of cultures, I mean, I love... But you're, you're speaking to that. You know, you're talking about, you know, the... Um, you know, not only just regional difference, you know, and like, I, I love, you know, one of the conversations I had with a guest that was on the show not too long ago, talking about like the differences of like, you know, I, I never grew up like eating cornbread that was that was not sweet you mm-hmm. know it was more like cake you mm-hmm. know i mean it was like it was basically like just cream corn man but right. then like the first time that i had cornbread in virginia it wasn't sweet at all like no, it was like no. it was drier right. and it was salty but and it was also you know it was it was kind of like the the multifaceted starch you know but mm-hmm. like when you start talking about like the the collision of like culture and like not only just like people in the South, but also where people are from throughout the rest of, you know, the planet essentially mm-hmm. like that's, um, that's just a really cool thing to see in your book. Mm-hmm. And as you're talking about like, you know, Asian influence and like, I mean, you know, going back to like your history of, you know, what you're experiencing in Chicago and like, you know, how you like to eat, like, this is a really powerful, really powerful quote. Well, you, you, I look at it in a sense that there's a, mythical strong debate of soul food versus southern food which are really the same in it Um, you get into the hues of and shades of color of people when you have that debate but no one says well what about northern food well there's no term northern food in our country when you get into what's considered or maybe considered northern food, you get into the ethnic values of the people. You know, you have Jewish community, you have Greek community, you have, you know, French community, French American community, even Caribbean and all those things. It's only in the South that we have these debates of black and white. Mm-hmm. And that, it, to me, is that involuntary collision of uh, and, and mashing of, of cultures that really what divides us is how much money you have to eat either high off the hog or, or low on the hog. Hmm. That makes it involuntary because the circumstances that you were born into may not always derive the outcome that you can have if you apply yourself to making your lives better. And that's what's important uh, to me in the book is stating that. Big time. Yeah. I mean, it's... um. It's, it's really evident throughout the book too. I mean, I, uh, I, th- I think, you know, kind of talking about some of like the actual content in your book, um, you know, st- I, I, I want to get to like a few <laughs> things like in the recipe side as well, but, um, but there's two things, you know, like when you're, when you're talking about like the things that make this book stand out to me, um, I love how many family photos and the, to, when I say family photos, like to me, there's like a very clear, definition of like what makes a family photo of like this is something that was probably in a box but like it just captures a moment in time and i mean you mentioned this at the <laughs> beginning of like you know the one with you with the birthday cake there, there's one where you're like sitting on a couch with a few other kids and you're wearing like a, a cowboy hat yeah. <laughs> but like to me it just like kind of 
takes me to, you know, the like formative parts of your youth or just things that made up, you know, just like the familial aspect. And there's, there's just so much fun in that. I I would agree with that. And it's fun in the process of writing a book, which made this part, what you're talking about so special is that my sister, uh, younger sister, uh, Kia has all these photos Hmm. and she kept all the photos from my mom uh my dad and she has them everywhere just like you said in a bag and you know in the closet in boxes and i said kia you know we need some family photos to represent you know the essence of the book i want to tell the story just in pictures alone so my sister is the one who's responsible for this she picked out all the photos she sent them to the publisher i had no idea what wow. photos that she picked and and the funny thing about it more than 50% of the photos that that she selected she wasn't even born yet oh so she gosh. had no physical recollection of of these experiences that took place there but she knew the people and and hmm. and that's the same thing with photos and with food that you can understand a people by just tasting the food that they produce yeah i know and it, it, it just it really adds so much just to i mean it, it adds really gravitas to when you're looking at this recipe and then like just like these really strong images and then i mean the ones from you know like family photos are amazing but then even just like the way that some of those photos are produced you know some of like the the location photos like just around atlanta or, or throughout you know and a yeah. lot of a lot of those are just you know they they really give so much more just uh, just like earthly feeling to it you know like it, it really draws you in well i agree with that and i really wanted to um, wanted to, to be a part of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Atlanta is my 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 home. It, it feels right. It always feels right. If we could somehow get a lake or a big body of water here, mm-hmm. it'll be even better. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for sure. But but you know, Angie Mosier, who I always have to give a shout out, and she's a, a one of the best food photographers and have done a lot of cookbooks. That she just listened. And understood that I wanted to get a part of Atlanta that people don't know. When you see the pictures of the watermelon man, who who we affectionately, oh, uh, you know, yeah, is in the book, and he has his own fruit and vegetable stand sitting here on Boulevard and Twenty, and most people don't know he's there. But every time you go there, and he just tells stories. He's a, from Jamaica, you know, came here, and mm. that's how he provides food from his for his family, and you know, and he just took time out of his day to actually you know take pictures and talked about watermelon and what it meant to his him and his family those are the people that you want to capture love is love farm bobby mm-hmm. Britt, you know all, all bobby Britt's farm all these people really contributed but they contributed because they knew that the story was so important yeah and i love angie Mosier's work man like it's uh i mean again like just those images like the one that you're talking about like the watermelon man and the one the outside of that market and like it just it you you have to spend some time on each one of those photos and just like kind of pick the story out of everything that has gone on you know with these individuals or at this specific place and it's uh man it's just really gripping and like that was the first thing that stood out to me is like god look at all these amazing photos because some some cookbooks i mean they're just really cut and dry you know it's just like okay we did a recipe and here's what the finished product looks like and well to your point that most uh soul food cookbooks are basically just recipes and stories mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of imagery one thing is that it's expensive to produce yeah. you know that you know books in, in that way and for you know Fortunately, I had a great publisher um, that understood what I was meaning by photos and wh- why we needed them. 
But what makes it really, you know, relevant is that the images of, of people and a lot of the people in the book are African-American. You see them in a different light, you know, than what necessarily media might portray us uh, as being. You see people in the market, you know, feeding their family, ordering food. You see collard greens in this broad sense of, of, of strength and, and not just a, a stereotype of, of one person's food. Those images are, are, are so much a part of the book that when you flip through it, it's like, I got to have it because mm-hmm. I need to know what this story is all about. Yeah, I know. And that, that's the thing that really just draws me in and to each one of the recipes, too. And, you know, talking about a few of the actual, um, you know, recipes and like kind of dishes throughout the book, um, there's a few. And, you know, like the, the collard ramen is mm-hmm. definitely one that, I mean, just stood out to me as like that's, mm-hmm. I mean, j- just seeing like the pictures, but also just thinking about that, like talk about like depth and umami flavor. I'm mm-hmm. like, yes. And you already mentioned your mom's catfish and then, um, and then cornbread. I mean, I love seeing how much like that, that dish is so versatile and you utilize it throughout the book in so many different ways. But, you know, talk to me just about like some of the, the standout recipes in the book in your well, opinion. Let's talk about the collard green ramen because that one is really the, the fun part of growing up as a kid. My dad, again, his frugality, you know, he would make collard greens and they'll be in a refrigerator. My mom had this love for this yakamine, this noodle soup at the Chinese food place. And so my dad requirement was, hey, we can in order to go food all we want, but we have to eat something with it from that's left over in the refrigerator. We can't just let this food go to waste. Mm-hmm. So you think about this noodle soup with you know pork belly, uh, soft uh, boiled eggs, scallions, and this you know beautiful broth. Anything about collard greens, you know, cooked with ham hock, uh, onions, crushed red pepper flakes, you know, sat there for three days, and all this you know flavor comes about. And then if you have a bowl of this noodle soup or noodle broth. And then you put some collard greens on top of it. What do you have? Well, essentially, we have collard green ramen. So this dish, you know, is a dish that I've been eating since I was like five, six years old. Wow. Because that's the way, you know, we were required to eat growing, growing up. And, you know, some people might see it as fusion or anything. That's like, this is just a black kid on the south side of Chicago eating the food that my parents put on the table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. Cause I mean, you know, I, I eat a lot of ramen. I love, mm. love ramen. One of my best friends lives in Tokyo and mm. he like sends me pictures of like tonkatsu or tsukemen mm. and like, I mean, yeah, you're like way above like what I'm getting, you yeah. know, from, for the most part in Atlanta, but mm. even just going to like Tantan in yeah. Pond City Market, yeah. like it's a damn good bowl of ramen, yeah, man. It is. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but, and I'll give Guy uh, uh, a shout out. Him and I, we've been friends for, for a long, long, long time. And, the way he makes that broth is the same way I would make it, you mm. know, at Tantan, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but man, ramen's something just super special. But I love seeing that, too. You know, mm. you think about, like, it's a it's a collection of, you know, protein and vegetables in, like, a noodle broth. Like, it is meant to, it's meant to be, like, a complete meal, you know? So. Well, one thing that most people don't realize, and we have this, and again, talking about, you know, somewhat about stereotypes of a soul and southern food, mm-hmm. is that they think it's high in fat, high in grease, high in everything, and really, it, even in the book, it shows it's 80% vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know, meat is just, you know, either for flavoring or it's a small part of what we would consume. And you think about the history of it, that chickens, you know, fried chicken once a week might be the only thing, because if you kill the chicken, where the eggs coming from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have you have one hog, and you kill that one hog that has to last you throughout the entire season. You know things like that. You know the 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 myth of of something being high in fat, high uh, calorie food is really not necessarily true. 
Mm-hmm. That, most of it is vegetables. Yeah. I had a, a Jen Hill Booker on the show not too long ago, and I love the way that she talked about soul food is that, you know, breaking the stereotype of where a lot of people think that soul food is just grits and gravy, and it's far more the celebration of amazing produce that has been grown and rested from the earth. And it's it's way more a complexity of flavors than a lot of people tend to immediately think that it is. Well, you know, we're not a single... People. We yeah. had a mono people. Uh, in my own household growing up, my dad, coming from Louisiana, was rice culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to uh, the Carolinas a little bit and then came up. So we have a little bit of rice, but my mom was more grit culture. And my dad um, you know, always made the rice because my mom instinctively would put butter in the water to make the rice. Mm-hmm. And my dad said, butter never goes into the water when you make rice. You cook the rice with water, salt, and that's it. And so we had these debates as a kid about rice culture, you know, and how are we going to make rice? The same thing with, with cornbread. You know, growing up in Chicago, cornbread is sweet. You come down the south, cornbread is not necessarily sweet. So my dad didn't like, you know, fully sweet cornbread. My mom did. So, you know, we made two pans of cornbread. You know, mm-hmm. growing so so you know to say that that it's only one way. When I know for sure we had these same debates in our own household, yeah. you know, as a kid, that doesn't make really sense, and it's really limiting to the contribution of a cuisine to the to the landscape of America. Yeah, and it's it's just really fun, man. I I love just the the story behind each one of these recipes is really fun, but I love the way that you pull it, you know, from. Now, not only your upbringing, but also just understanding like where all of this fits in throughout the South. It's just so fun to read about. And um, one of the other aspects that I just love about this book, and I want you to talk about this a little bit, but there's so much music in your book. You know, I mean, I love like the playlist, like here's a recommended, you know, like playlist. And then you go through the back and like, they're all right there. Like all these artists, like talk to me about why you want to incorporate that in your book. Well, it's a sense of hospitality. Have you ever gone to a restaurant where there's no music, no ambiance? Oh, it's the worst. Right. So you know, why would a cookbook not provide that? That's, that's the basic simple, you know, forms. Like you have to have a playlist. You have to create the whole experience that you want the guests to have. So that's basic hospitality. Number, you know, one oh one from it also just in our household growing up that if we had a backyard barbecue there's music out there you can go mm-hmm. into the basement there would be a different set of music mm-hmm. and you go upstairs into the kitchen or dining room there's a whole different set of music that that gave us the rhythm of what each area was going to be and also gives the the reader of the cookbook a rhythm of how to prepare a meal that it has a cadence you know that you chop onions you don't chop you know it, you know uh, without a rhythm in cutting onions or cutting vegetables, that you know you don't you know slice meat you know stabbing it and everything like that. You slice all the way through it in harmony, mm-hmm. and that in providing that 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 playlist gives people a sense of harmony and gives them freedom to say you know maybe I don't like Nora Jones you know at this one, but I do like David Bowie at this party you know yeah yeah and it's things like that you know or, or, or you know why is Coltrane so important you know why is it my favorite thing so important or, or why is the power station saying some like it hot, you know, at mm-hmm. one in the morning when you're, you know, coming home and eating some cold fried chicken? Why is that record so great? It's just about freedom and a way to express yourself through food and, you know, through sound and music. Yeah, I, I think more people need to like turn this practice into like how they're writing their cookbooks. Like I love to think about that, like just seeing that playlist and putting in that setting of like, you know, where each of these dishes like are actually coming into play. Like it's a perfect marriage. I love that. It's it, honestly, it's one of my favorite aspects aspects of the book so for- I remember my uh, publisher they, they were you know like you know I 
why is this important? And I explained it on the same way. And immediately, I think we were over pages by, you know, by three or four pages. And we cut out some other things to make sure that that went to the book. I'm but glad. I think it's, think it's just that important to make sure that people have a total experience. Yeah, big time. But I am a huge fan of your work. And especially this book has just, it's unlocked even more just how i mean <laughs> again like this is this is me speaking but uh, mm-hmm. this would be a lot of other people as well like just how cool your story is chef it's just it's something amazing and like your work is is so important to the city of atlanta but especially throughout the entire southeast and uh really i mean the rest of the country especially how many people are coming through the atlanta airport <laughs> and they being at one from south and like it's amazing the things that you've touched so i i just want to say thank you for everything that i've ever eaten of yours but especially <laughs> now having this on my shelf at home is something really special well, you know, only thing I ask people is, that, you know, if they buy the book, make sure they're taking pictures. But I want to see pictures of not only what the book, but what they're creating. I don't want to see any clean cookbooks. You know, it needs to be sitting next to the kitchen. Yes. You know, has some fire oil on it, or, you know, or some, yep. something that's popped on it, some hot sauce on it. You know, I want mm-hmm. people to utilize the book. And then also, I encourage anyone that has kids to use the book and cook with their kids. You know, kids, you know, we have to get back into teaching our youth how to cook delicious food and and how to entertain because that's how you know the fabric of america was you know is really founded how do we entertain each other how do we solve problems together how do we sit down at the table and and eat together i always say if you go into a restaurant and you see a lot of people breaking up in the restaurant the food is not that delicious Mm. because if you sit there with delicious food at that moment in time the whole world stops Big time. And that's what we want to do. We want to slow things down so we can get back to being one family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big time. But man, it was such a pleasure having you on the show, Chef. Thank you so much. And, 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 I, and I'm a bad host. I didn't even offer you a glass of champagne. No, maybe, it, maybe, maybe afterwards we'll yeah, have more. Yeah, I think it's it's important. I've got to I've got to start and end my day now with more champagne. <laughs> but um, but yeah, just with uh with the last like couple seconds here, I know that you mentioned you have some things like kind of in the works. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I, you know, I always have things in work. My my brain does not stop creating uh, until I look at the numbers and I have to, you know, be the, the bad cop and get food costs, you know, beverage costs <laughs> all in line. I am working on a uh, barbecue place um, in, in southwest Atlanta, uh, revitalizing that area. Um, I can't talk about things like gentrification if you're not willing to invest into the neighborhood mm-hmm. as well. And that's what I'm working on next. And then, you know, people call me all the time, ask me about projects. And at this um, moment in my career, I am being a little bit more choosy about things that I actually want to do. The legacy of a chef is not necessarily about how many restaurants that you open or how much money you make. It's about how many people in your kitchen go on to do greater things than, than what the chef is accomplishing. And that's really what my focus is now, how to make those, you know, people on my staff uh, greater than me. Big time. But man, Chef Todd Richards, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we'll definitely make sure that everybody knows where they could pick up a copy of your book. And uh, if you haven't been to one of your restaurants yet, uh, you know, it's shame it's, on you. Yeah, shame, shame, <laughs> shame on you and go eat the best damn fried chicken you've ever had in your life. Right. But thanks for being on the show, man. It was a real pleasure. All right, thank you very much. Many thanks go out to Chef Todd Richards for being on the show this week. And if you want to pick up a copy of his cookbook, Soul, you can pick it up just about anywhere around Atlanta where cookbooks are sold, on Amazon, and so on. And I'll have all the links on the episode page this week, so check it out when you have a chance. But until next time, I cannot wait to bring you guys more stories from local chefs, 
culinary entrepreneurs, and people who are making this city the greatest for eaters. I'm your host, Ben Getz. Thanks again for listening to the Atlanta Foodcast.